You are listening to National Security Law Today. This is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, here with my co-hosts, Elisa and Yvette. It is time for the news and the law. On the line, we have Bill Banks, who is a professor at Syracuse University College of Law and at the Maxwell School. He's the founder of Syracuse's Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism and an expert in national security and constitutional law who quite literally wrote the book on the subject. We are also going to be joined by John Bellinger, who's the former legal advisor to the National Security Council and subsequently to the U.S. State Department under George W. Bush and who is now a partner at the law firm of Arnold & Porter. All right. This week, the United States targeted General Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, or Iran's Revolutionary Guards Quds Force. Um, He was killed in Iraq, where pro-Iranian Shia militias operate, um, sometimes contrary to the U.S. efforts there. And his death follows a week in which the U.S. embassy in Iraq was attacked, ransacked, and burned, conjuring images for some of Benghazi and the embassy siege in Tehran in 1979. So let's give a little background on General Soleimani. Yvette? So General Soleimani led the Quds Force for 20 years and was a household name in Iran. The Quds Force has been described as an Iranian military agency that's somewhat like the CIA and special forces combined. We don't really have an analog for it at DOD, but he was a very prominent um, and highly regarded military figure. He was known as probably the second most powerful uh, figure in Iran after the Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, He has quite a storied history of... um, running and planning asymmetric warfare uh, and attacks against the U.S. and other um, allies. For example, he helped establish Hezbollah, a terror group in Lebanon, and who um, stands at the moment. uh, We're recording on Wednesday, January 8th. uh, At 2.30 in the afternoon. At 2.30 in the afternoon. So if if, if there's uh, developments after this, like apologies. Um, But as we are recording, um, Hezbollah has threatened to strike Israel uh, if we, if the United States um, counterattacks following the reprisals. uh, And we'll get into that for a second. Um, in a second. Uh, they, he also, Suleimani also supported Bashar al-Assad in Syria. He plotted to assassinate the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. He's supplied Shia militias in Iraq to undermine the Sunni government, um, the theory being that a weak Iraq is better for Iran. And he also supported the Taliban uh, in order to undermine Hamid Karzai's government in Afghanistan. For all this and more, he was a designated terrorist under Executive Orders 13382 and 13224. All right. So he seems to be a pretty dangerous person. But let's start with the basics. Was it legal to kill him under U.S. domestic law? Doesn't Executive Order 12333 ban extraterritorial assassinations? And what about international law? Bill? You know, it's uh, we should start with the basics. And it's probably better to, to back up to the U.S. Constitution and just remind everyone that under the Constitution, it's it's up to Congress to decide whether to take the United States to war. It's up to the president to lead troops into battle as commander-in-chief. And so a prominent question here, maybe the overarching question, is whether the strike against Soleimani was an offensive act of war or a defensive act of protecting the national security of the United States. One of the manifestations of that is uh, 
is looking at the executive order on uh, so-called assassinations 12333. Uh, you know, language is important, of course, and the terms, specific terms, are quite important. An assassination is always unlawful. Arguably, what was done here was not an assassination at all, but instead was a targeted killing. It's a term of art, of course, that that, uh, that the United States and other nations use uh, when directed at a lawful target uh, during the time of armed conflict or in the case of defending uh, against an attack brought upon the United States. And that would be the administration's position here. Well, um, so just going back to your original comment, the administration didn't notify uh, Congress or the Gang of Eight prior to the strike, correct? That's my understanding as well. And I think they, they should be uh, called to the carpet for that. that uh, that's required under the War Powers Resolution. It's good government in any case, even if the president had the Article II defensive war power to uh, respond to the acts of aggression by the Iranians in Iraq, uh, he should have sought uh, to at least consult with the leadership of Congress or the so-called Gang of Eight in the, uh, in the intelligence community or intelligence uh, committees, and he did neither. So the Trump administration's theory of the case behind this targeted killing uh, was based on the imminent threat of harm to Americans. And when it was press secretary of state, Pompeo said, if you're looking for imminence, you need only look at the days that led up to the strike that was taken against Soleimani. So there, Secretary Pompeo is referring to an attack that killed a U.S. contractor in December, but he didn't mention anything regarding an imminent future attack. What is the legal significance of the term imminent? And is that a cognizable interpretation of that term that was put forward? It might be cognizable. It, you know, imminent is, uh, has taken on great importance in the last 30 years or so, uh, it, particularly in response to international terrorism, when it's uh, reasonably concluded that the United States doesn't need to literally wait for the attack before it can act to stop one that's regarded to be imminently coming. Uh, and in many instances, uh, imminence is a, is along a timeline. So if there have been repeated attacks and there's a pattern, uh, it's reasonable to expect that an additional attack might be forthcoming. So it's a, we, we should know in an unclassified fashion some public facts about the basis upon which uh, Secretary Pompeo decided that there was an imminent threat to harm to Americans. Uh, there may be classified facts that we can't see. Of course, members of Congress could see them. But the public should be uh, told exactly what it was that led to that conclusion. We don't know yet. And isn't that because uh, it would be illegal for us to um, have assassinated uh, Soleimani as a reprisal for the death of that American contractor? If there were not indeed a predicate... Reprisals are unlawful in, in all cases at U.S. law and international law. Uh, the, the question under the executive order would be whether this was a targeted killing or an assassination. I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard of any expert opinion that's concluded that this uh, act was an assassination targeting uh, Soleimani. I think it probably was a targeted killing. But again, we need to know the predicate. We need to know the basis, the, the justification for the conclusion that this was a part of a defensive campaign by the United States to counter an imminent terrorist threat emanating from the IRGC in Iran. Right. And that that would be occurring in the future. Yes.
So some media outlets are reporting that Iran is considering this an act of war. Uh, and of course, with their um, response, uh, they're targeting uh, sites in Erbil and uh, another um, airbase, the Al-Assad airbase. They were uh, specifically targeting um, housing units that uh, housed both U.S. and Iraqi military forces. As of right now, um, there is a conflict in the reporting. Um, the Iranians are saying that dozens of Americans were killed. The U.S. government is saying that no Americans were killed. At at any rate, um, was Iran justified in um, in those strikes? And is it indeed an act of war? And who could they justifiably target, if so, on the American side? You know, this gets into escalation and theories of uh, uh, under international law of what counts as an armed conflict. I think when John Bellinger arrives, I think a good question for him to address is whether we're in a state of armed conflict with Iran. Uh, because if we are, the, the, the opportunities and limitations are, are different than if we are not. I think in general... Uh, that no, Iran was not legally authorized to strike at the United States. Uh, the, the United States wasn't an aggressor in taking out Soleimani. It was acting to defend itself. Uh, so that would draw a line and make it impermissible legally for Iran to, to act. Uh, of course, uh, Iran would see things differently and doesn't pay much attention to international law in any case. Sure. Um, but... Even that, even though that's the case, uh, the United States practice has been to uh, comply with international law, um, regardless of what the other side is doing. Right? That's right. So, in addition to uh, in addition to our concern about how the Iranians uh, might be responding, uh, we also have a, an issue with the Iraqis. Uh, the Iraqi parliament earlier voted to expel U.S. troops. Um, the U.S. Uh, Brigadier General that was in command of the MAGTAF, the military, um, the Marine unit down there, uh, seemed to accede to that request in a letter, but the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, and the President retracted that, saying it was a draft that was sent out in error. Um, and the President is saying that if the Iraqis is expel our some 5,000 troops, then he will levy sanctions. Is this legal? Well, it's, uh, you know, First of all, the Iraqi resolution was uh, was uh, precatory, and it was a draft, and it's uh, it doesn't have binding effect yet. Iraq can, of course, uh, tell the United States forces to leave its country. We're there as a result of their invitation, or if not invitation, at least with their consent. Uh, the fact that the United States has invested uh, uh, heavily in in facilities and infrastructure in Iraq to house those troops is uh, not a problem that the Iraqis will have to deal with. Uh, you know, the president may levy sanctions or he may propose sanctions and there'd be a legal process for determining whether they uh, could be made effective. And, and as we now know, the president has considerable discretion uh, to levy sanctions, but it certainly wouldn't be unlawful uh, for the uh, Iraqis to order the United States to leave. And there's a you know, a, a considerable irony now uh, that the the strike against Soleimani may have led to uh, the, uh, the, Iraq, the Iranians gaining an upper hand by forcing the United States to either withdraw or considerably restrict or limit, downsize its forces in Iraq, uh, leaving Iran the stronger role to play in that region of the world. 
Sure. So what would be the um, predicate for the uh, president to impose sanctions in Iraq for ordering our troops out of the country? Well, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but that's never stopped him. So I expect we might might see an economic uh, sanction, you know, based on any number of of things that the president could or his his staff advisors could come up with. Uh, There have been all kinds of justifications for economic sanctions in the past. So, Bill, the administration has claimed that the use of force uh, in this situation was authorized under the 2002 authorization for the use of military force. That's controversial. Can you talk a little bit about why it's controversial? Yes. I mean, the, the arguments that would uh, have us gain authority to go after Suleiman in Iraq on the basis of the 2002 authorization for the use of force, I think, don't add up. The main problem, of course, is that the target in this instance was an Iranian, uh, not an Iraqi, and that Iran was uh, in no way involved in the conflict that the United States entered into in Iraq in 2003 and the years thereafter. So I, I think it would be a real stretch of the terms of the 2002 resolution. Others have argued that the original AUMF, the one that was enacted a few weeks, a few days after 9-11, might authorize the, the president's action in this case. And I think that's similarly misplaced because uh, there it was those responsible for 9-11 and their supporters who the Congress authorized the president to target. And that's essentially the Taliban and al-Qaeda and the uh, the Iranian-based IRGC and Mr. Soleimani himself, of course, uh, are are not connected to the Taliban or al-Qaeda. Some have argued that some Iranian groups might be harboring uh, al-Qaeda offshoots. I've seen no evidence, no public evidence of that, uh, and it seems unlikely in any case. So I think that neither of those two resolutions are very strong. Apart from the Constitution, the only other really relevant piece of domestic law that bears here is the War Powers Resolution, enacted, of course, in 1973. There, uh, the, the resolution doesn't authorize anything. It sets up a process, a mechanism for the President and the Congress to uh, consult and report and collaborate, uh, in theory, on decisions to use uh, military force. None of that was done in this case. But it would not be proper to argue that the that the resolution authorizes executive branch action. In fact, it requires consultation and reporting. As we pointed out earlier, the consultation appears not to have occurred in this case. A report was submitted within the required 48 hours, but it was a, it was a very thin report uh, with entirely classified information, and uh, the administration has so far not seen fit to elaborate on its contents. I I do wonder what's going to happen if the administration decides to somehow link, make this link through the claim of um, Soleimani's, you know, use of our support of the Taliban at a later time, Um, whether or not that, you know, in in, in times other than the ones that would would have... um, been present when that resolution was drafted, if somehow that would make it permissible. And we haven't seen that exactly stated yet, but one has to wonder if that will be the road that is taken in this case. 
Yeah, what's, if, if the administration successfully argues that the strike against Suleimani himself was defensive in nature, that it was based on this idea of a continuing course of unlawful terrorist uh, uh, conduct attacks waged by the IRGC under Suleimani's orders, if that link is established and if the argument is perhaps even backed up with a little more information about the, uh, the factual predicate for, uh, for our strike, then I think in an ongoing way, the same legal theory would be used to justify additional actions. That is not the 2002 or 2001 resolutions, but instead this theory that's essentially based on U.S. Article II constitutional law and a bit, as John Bellinger will elaborate, on the international law. Isn't it um, problematic, uh, just our reliance on these, you know, more and more attenuated, uh, you know, strands of authority from these different, you know, um, uh, acts of Congress, right? Like these, these, um, the authorizations for use of military force were, you know, designed to respond to what happened in the 9-11 attacks. And there have been there's been a lot of commentary about um, th- you know those needing to be repealed, um, not uh, allowing uh, presidents to sort of unilaterally wage war or um, use force without going back for authorizations from Congress. Um, President Obama fought this battle a little bit um, with respect to Syria, uh, and you know he wanted to respond, for example to Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons uh, against uh, civilian, um, you know, populations, but ultimately was not able to get a use of force authorization from Congress and therefore demurred. Is there a problem with the fact that we're not getting, uh, you know, participation from Congress and a lot of this uh, discretion is just, you know, by default reposed in the executive branch? I think that is a big problem. As as we know, uh, the House of Representatives has been debating a resolution that would speak specifically to the Iranian situation. Uh, uh, but the chances of enacting a, such a resolution in the political context are uh, slim or none. I think you know, one of the things that distinguishes uh, this uh, set of circumstances from others after 9-11 is, is that it's, it's terrorism. Uh, it, it's not state against state conflict so much as it is a response to terrorist acts, even though they're perpetrated through sponsorship of Iran. And Congress's failure to participate here is, uh, goes back well before 9-11 to the terrorist attacks of the 1980s and 1980s, 1990s. I'm thinking in particular of the uh, bombings of Libyan targets in 1986 after the Berlin discotheque bombing. Uh, and then in 1998 in the Clinton administration, the response to the uh, attacks on the East African embassies when we uh, bombed uh, Afghanistan and Sudan uh, going after targets. There again, the theory in both cases was that we were defending against the continuing course of terrorist conduct. Uh, the, Mr. Sofair, then the legal advisor's famous uh, phrase is that we would prevent and deter uh, future attacks by responding militarily now. And I think those two analogies uh, are fairly well uh, placed alongside the events of the last week or so. 
And thank you so much to Bill Banks, who has to drop off the call at this point. But we are able to welcome our next guest on the line, John Bellinger, who we introduced at the top of the show. Hi, it's John Bellinger. Hi. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so Good much to have you, John. for uh, joining us. And I'm sorry to be late. Lots going on in the world right now. Yeah, Just a yeah. few things. Just a few things. <laughs> You're not the only one who was late today. Our chief executive of the United States and our commander-in-chief was regrettably a half an hour late to uh, respond to this. Um, so let's just ask the main question, Yvette. Uh, yeah. So, John, um, Bill teed up a, a, a question we'd love to pose to you. Are we in a state of armed conflict with Iran right now? I think the answer to that is not. Uh, this was, in my mind, the, the strike against Soleimani was a uh, one-off uh, uh, strike uh, in self-defense against Soleimani, not because we were in a state of armed conflict with Iran at the time. Uh, the fact that Iran then responded so that we actually have uh, projectiles being launched back and forth is a more difficult question, but I, uh, my view of that is that that was simply a, a response back that does not put us into a continuing state of armed conflict between the United States and Iran. Well, what about Iran's uh, statements, right, their recent statements uh, threatening uh, death to America and destruction, and then backing that up with uh, with the use of force. Well, uh, of course, they've been saying those things for a long time, uh, and they've, of course, been supporting acts of terrorism against the United States for a long time. Uh, but as far as actually rising to the uh, a continuous level, uh, uh, I don't think we have yet reached the state of armed conflict between the two countries. Um, so, uh, we have spent a little while, uh, talking about the assassination or targeted killing of, um, General Soleimani. Um, and we wanted to ask a couple of questions about the president's, uh, statements immediately following. Um, he, uh, President Trump said that, uh, if Iran took any retaliatory action, that the United States would target 52 sites in Iran, some of which were considered culturally significant. The Secretary of State supported that stance, arguing that it would be legal, but the Secretary of Defense uh, said that he would not authorize strikes on cultural sites, citing the law of armed conflict. Our allies, including the UK uh, um, and Germany and France, all agree that it would breach international law. In the interim, uh, the president has walked back that comment, but it would be really useful to inform the um, our audience about what the law is re- regarding um, cultural uh, heritage and property and whether or not it would be legal for us to – for the United States to target uh, those sites if uh, Iran were to – Escalate. And just to be precise, John, what he said was he would follow the law. So uh, we're looking for what exactly is that law? Right. And of course, he had also said the day before uh, that he would uh, follow the law and wanted to be in compliance with the law. So my hope is that uh, uh, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, maybe his uh, counsel to the president have all told the president what the law is. 
so uh, it, it would be uh, a violation at, at least of the uh, Hague Convention on Protection of Cultural Property in Armed Conflict to uh, target cultural sites. Uh, this was a, a 1954 uh, treaty that the U.S. had been at the forefront of negotiating after there was so much damage to cultural property during World War II, uh, and the United States was one of the leaders in negotiating it. Uh, and then uh, it stalled back in the 1950s because of concern about the uh, uh, during the Cold War of attacking the Kremlin. When I was legal advisor, uh, I uh, dusted that off and we sent it back to the Senate. I testified in favor of it in 2008, as did representatives of the Defense Department and the, and the military, and the Senate uh, unanimously approved the uh, Hague Convention, and we're now a party along with, uh, I think, more than 130 other countries in the world, and that does make it uh, a, a violation of the treaty to target uh, cultural sites. There are a couple of exceptions for cases of uh, uh, military necessity or if the site is actually being used for military purposes, but you know, to it, it appeared that the President's statement that we would purposely target cultural sites would be, uh, in fact, a flagrant violation uh, of the uh, Hague Convention. Uh, uh, and I wrote a lawfare post about this a couple of days ago, urging uh, the President's senior advisors to make sure that he is aware of the law, and I was very pleased when Secretary Esper, in fact, said, and this is very important for him to have done so, to signal uh, to people in the Defense Department that the Defense Department will follow the law of armed conflict. Uh, in addition, it's possible that it could be a war crime. Of course, not every violation of the law of armed conflict is a war crime, uh, but the uh, Rome Statute, to which the United States, of course, is not a party, uh, uh, does make uh, 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 intentional attacks on historic monuments a war crime, uh, and uh, people have been prosecuted for that. So uh, I think uh, critics have been a little bit too quick to immediately say, well, that the president's statements that he would attack cultural sites is immediately a war crime, could be a war crime, uh, but uh, the one thing that is clear is that it would very likely uh, violate the Hague Cultural Property Convention to which the United States is a party, and I'm glad the president has walked that back. And let's, John, let's give some body to this this idea of, of cultural property. I did, looking at the Geneva Convention, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a neophyte in this regard without the kind of experience that Yvette has, but I especially like the quote from uh, Christophe Emer de Battelle that we ought to spare those edifices which do honor to human society, not American society, not Iraqi society, but human society, and do not contribute to increase the enemy's strength, such as temples, bombs, public buildings, and all works of remarkable beauty. Uh, I thought it might be important to put that out there, but let's talk a little bit more about what that definition is in the Hague Convention. Would it include any of the following? I'll rattle off a few for you. Um, a bike share stand? Yeah, so well, we, since we don't know what the president uh, was saying that he was going to target uh, in terms of cultural sites, we don't know for certain whether it would uh, – uh, uh, 
what uh, whether it would violate the terms of the Hague Convention or uh, or whether these are historic monuments or not. I suppose there could be modern history, modern cultural sites, uh, but uh, it, uh, it it would appear from what the president was saying if he was going to intentionally target uh, historic uh, cultural sites that are uh, important to Iran's history and culture uh, that those are exactly the kinds of sites of historical and cultural significance that the Hague Convention uh, was negotiated to try to protect. And as we all know, the president rarely backs down, uh, and uh, it was, I think, good and important in this case that he, that he did. Uh, and I think that was in large part because his own Secretary of Defense, having been briefed by uh, his own military uh, and civilian lawyers on what the law is, uh, uh, said, we will follow the law of armed conflict. And at that point, uh, the president, not wanting to be undercut by his secretary of defense, uh, said, well, I will, I will follow the law. Uh, you know, the problem here is that the president has, has steadfastly refused to really be, to, to be briefed on and learn, you know, the laws of war and the laws on the use of force and law of armed conflict. And, you know, that's why he has, you know, interfered in uh, military prosecutions and, you know, threatened, uh, and threatened other actions. So I'm glad in this case that the Secretary of Defense did the right thing. Uh, John, let me just say, so the, so what we're trying to say is, uh, we talk about the definition is what we're trying to, to bring to the fore here. But um, to give an analog in our culture, um, you know, cultural property would not be things like a bike share uh, stand uh, or a shopping mall, but it might be Mount Rushmore or the Smithsonian. Um, or any of the important monuments. And there will be things in uh, religious things, things in other cultures that will have that significance and um, perhaps even more ancient significance. And those are the things that um, I think the drafters were saying uh, are w- works of remarkable beauty that honor human society. Uh, is that right? Yes, I, I, I think that's right. So, you know, again, we don't know you know, because the president didn't provide a list of the targets that he planned to strike, you know, whether that specifically fell within the definitions of the uh, Hague Convention or whether they were historic monuments within the definition of the Rome Statute. Uh, uh, but, you know, presumably when he was talking about cultural sites, he was not talking about, uh, you know, modern bike share stands in, in Tehran, that he really was trying to threaten to uh, to strike historic sites uh, uh, because he knew that that would uh, be insulting to the Iranians. And, uh, uh, you know, that's specifically what the Hague Convention was intended to protect. And that, you know, or, 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 as, as a number of other people have said, it's, it's probably highly unlikely that uh, our targeteers have ever even put any of those on any of our targets because they've been trained in the laws of war, uh, the targets targeteers at CENTCOM, uh, and you know, they would not have even put those things uh, necessarily on a target uh, because they know that those would violate uh, uh, the Hague Convention. Thank you, John. So thanks very much to both you and Bill Banks for popping by today. 
Uh, And thanks for listening to National Security Law Today. Don't forget to tap on that subscribe button on your listening app of choice. And you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles, including uh, John's Lawfare article and uh, the Hague Convention that we mentioned, uh, at AmericanBar.org slash NatchSecurity and in the notes of this podcast. There is always an important caveat to any legal podcast, and this is it. All of the attorneys on this podcast today are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Hey, drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec and on Facebook. Um, So we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much. Goodbye. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.